You're listening to The Catholic Podcast. Welcome back to The Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer. So if you're wondering where we were the last two weeks, Chloe was busy having a baby, and I was finishing up a book manuscript. So apologies for anyone waiting around for an episode. I'm excited about today's episode. Our guest is Don Eden Goldstein, who is a convert from Reformed Judaism, first to Protestantism and then to Catholicism. And so I wanted to share a little bit of her story. So we've got an interview with her by phone. So without further ado, here's Don. Don, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Joe. Well, for those who don't know, uh, Don is the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same. And the first thing I want to say about the book is I'm really uh, amused and appreciative of all of the musical puns you have uh, throughout. Oh, the thank you. <laughs> do you want to give uh, listeners a, a hint for why you chose to do that? Because I, I know it relates well, to your own personal story. Well, you know, I didn't exactly use puns, but I think what you mean is that I title each uh, chapter with the title of a song. Right, right. And so, that's what I mean. It's like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, to, to, uh, to an English speaker, it can also sound like a pun, but I actually try to avoid using puns in books because my books have been tr- translated into a number of languages now, and so I pity the poor translator who has to capture the sense of an English <laughs> language pun. Um, but yes, uh, well, uh, I'm a big fan of the oldies, especially pop music of the 1960s, uh, so I found a song title that speaks for every chapter of the book. Uh, originally, the foreword was not going to have a song title. It was just going to be author's foreword, but my editor asked me for a song title, and I thought, well, I don't want the reader to skip the foreword, the foreword so I thought of the Beatles song title, Don't Pass Me By. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. So I guess what I really mean is that each, each song title is used in kind of an evocative way. And some of them actually tie in uh, to the course of the to the course of your story. So let's let's get into. Oh yes, I try to make everyone. Oh, oh, sorry to interrupt. I do try to make every song song title tie in. So you know, during during a section where where the hound of heaven is drawing nearer to me, and I'm going to have to make a decision, I use the love and spoonful song title. Did you ever have to make up your mind? in the chapter where I first uh, received the, the grace, uh, the gift of faith, that chapter has to be titled, you know, if we're going to 60s song titles, it has to be I'm a believer and so on. Yeah, so that's, I, it gives a little sense of the uh, the feel of the book. And, and each of, so for those who haven't read it or maybe are interested in it, uh, the format is uh, kind of little time spots it'll be a a day and a time and then you kind of you take the whole thing pretty much in chronological order i'm so glad you didn't say diary like because many people are saying that but actually given that it begins when i'm just five years old you know i couldn't be keeping such a detailed diary at at five of you know various moments in my life so really uh the time stamps are to give people an idea of the movie in my head. I'm sure I'm not the only human being, at least not in America. I, I, I'm, I'm not the only person who 
has a constant movie script running in their head. So uh, I just, you know, in writing this, put that whole movie script in on paper so that, you know, when I'm 31 and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm walking down the street. My umbrella is all is already uh, sprouting a, a couple of you know sharp spokes, but you know because it's just a cheap five dollar umbrella. You know that's really just the interior monologue uh, that uh, which you know becomes more interesting to me if I imagine well one day I'm going to make a movie of this, and in that movie I, I'm going to mention this detail and that detail and. You know, as it happens, you know, I'll probably never be a filmmaker, but at least I can create the the literary equivalent with uh, this memoir, Sunday Will Never Be the Same. That's a good way of approaching it. That, that less like a diary and more almost like a written biopic or something. Yes, yes, that's right. So one of the things I like thematically about the book, and maybe you can speak to this, is the way that it incorporates uh, several really different dimensions. So it's a conversion story. And I think people have a certain yeah. idea of what to expect uh, with the conversion account. But with yours, I would say broadly, so the themes that I'm seeing are the sort of search for happiness, um, the sort of intellectual dimension with the conversion, you know, Chesterton and, and all of the other kind of intellectual influences in that direction, uh, right. In a very, like, specifically spiritual, uh, the whole thing with Romans 3, I'll let you explain uh, that. So, I don't know. It, it, what captured me thematically about it is that it, it's not uh, a single dimension. You know, oftentimes I think there's this sense of wanting to simplify it so that our life becomes an easy story. You know, I believed this, and then I was intellectually uh, persuaded that this other thing was true, and then I, I made the jump. But I think yours right. has a lot more layers and dimensions to it. Thank you. I'm really glad you picked up on that because that's exactly what I set out to do. So I grew up Jewish. I was an agnostic in my uh, through my uh, from my late teens through my twenties uh, until I was 31 when I had my first of a couple of major conversions. Because first I became Christian and set out to be baptized but wanted to be a generic protestant in my mind be able to do my own thing uh, a kind of lone, lone ranger christian and then uh thankfully god had other plans and and uh, it's, uh several years after my uh baptism uh when i was uh 37 i entered uh into full communion with the catholic church uh, praise god and so you know, as you say, I'm not so interested in describing how I was persuaded on this or that issue. I do touch upon that at several points in the narrative, but I'm more interested in in, in looking at where was God throughout all this? Where was divine providence in my life? And I wanted to write about that in a way that would be convincing to the people who knew me when I was in high school and college and when I was a rock and roll journalist and his rock historian writing about music and going to nightclubs in New York City. Uh, there were a lot of people who knew me back then or knew of me through my work uh, interviewing and writing about artists from the 60s such as Harry Nilsson and, and Del Shannon. And so I, I want to reach these people who 
whom I knew back in the 80s and 90s who were reading my my work. And I thought that the way to reach them would it to be very, would to be authentic about what I was thinking and feeling at the time instead of reading back into it and saying, you know, I now realize that this was an experience similar to what Augustine describes in his Confessions. You know, if I could instead just write in the present person and say, I'm at this Robin Hitchcock concert and I'm feeling, you know, this way, but then something happens that changes, you know, my view and just describe, you know, the the feelings, it, it makes it more convincing, I think, for the reader to have it all present tense and it makes it possible for the reader to get inside my head as time goes on and be able to, you know, think back upon the previous chapters and see how, yes, that was actually God's grace working, God's divine providence working, even though I didn't know it at the time. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I think the detail is going to be really striking uh, when people read it, that it doesn't have a narrator. It doesn't have someone saying, here's here's how the story is going to go. So, for example, uh, in Stephen Gray Dennis's review, of the movie Unplanned. One of the things he points uh-huh. out is that there's this very comforting narrator that from the mm-hmm. beginning, you have a voice telling you, this is all going to work out. Yeah, she works for Planned Parenthood now, but she's not going to in the end. And his argument was right. that artistically it would be more powerful to put people in the more uncomfortable position of just entering into the scene and not knowing where it's going to go any more than the people in the scene uh, know where it's going to go. And so you don't I'm have so uh, any kind of narrator. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up because when I read that review by Stephen Graydonis of Unplanned, what I thought was exactly what you're describing, that I'm so glad I took the approach that I did because, you know, I would like to think based on that review that if Stephen Graydonis were to read it, he would approve (laughs) because I, I do exactly what he prescribes in terms of not telegraphing everything because I figure there's enough telegraphy going on already just with the fact that there's a picture of St. Maximilian Colby on the cover and there's a picture of the Sacred Heart on the cover. There's a picture of Mary on the back cover and there's enough, you know, cover copy, you know, with, you know, this wonderful endorsement by Terry Teachout uh, about, you know, about how uh, Don Eden Goldstein is on this pilgrimage from confusion to certainty. So I figure with all those things telegraphing to people that there's a conversion going on in this book, uh, I don't need to uh, give people like little, you know, clues as they go on saying like, don't worry, this is really going to be all right. I can actually bring the reader down with me into the very real suicidal feelings that I have at times and temptations to to despair uh, because of the various things that I was suffering from, like, you know, these spiritual wounds uh, that were I only, you know, much later in life discovered, you know, after suffering from this suicidal depression, that these wounds were, were in fact, PS, PTSD um, brought on by the childhood abuse. I knew I'd been abused, but I didn't have a language to or an accurate diagnosis to describe what I was going through during my late teens, 20s, all I knew was that you know, I had these cycles of of depression where I would feel like harming myself. And, you know, what I knew too was that with my conversion, I no longer um, was 
in danger of harming myself. I felt that I couldn't, you know, think about that anymore, even though I still suffered from anxiety after my conversion. But I felt that somehow just the knowledge that God loved me and he cared about me meant I couldn't harm myself. So, you know, it's, it's things like that that the reader walks through me and I, walks through with me rather and I, and I feel, although I guess you could say the reader walks through me in a way. And, uh, and so I felt that those things are more powerful if, um, I don't, as you say, if I don't tell the reader, don't worry, everything's really going to be okay. The author survives to write this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, the author survives right. The fact that it's a book, <laughs> obviously, not just like, well, a terrible thing happened. I never recovered, and it doesn't get better. <laughs> it's probably not. Exactly. Right. Right. Like you do go to some pretty dark places, um, and you kind of bring the reader with you. So let's let's talk about that in the context of this conversion apart. I think we're used to, like I said, like these intellectual conversions. And I don't want to downplay, mm-hmm. obviously, the role the intellectual part plays. But I think you draw out this other part, this real, like, this this Augustinian, like you said, quest for uh, the satisfaction of the human heart. Can you speak to maybe yeah. some of the wounds, some of the ways you tried to remedy that, and then how that played into your conversion? Sure. Well, towards the beginning of the book, when I'm describing uh, being five years old and older, I... I describe um a couple of times in my in my life when when I was um in a in a vulnerable uh pos- position um when when I suffered uh, abuse and uh, and sexual uh, molestation uh by uh, two different uh perpetrators and and I describe some of the family dynamics surrounding that because one of the perpetrators um was after my parents' divorce, it was one of my mother's boyfriends. And uh, I'm careful not to describe the abuse in detail because, again, I'm thinking cinematically and I'm thinking of myself and how I'm easily uh, or is somewhat easily uh, tr- triggered. I, I don't like reading descriptions of, of abuse. I figure that, that you know, Readers won't won't either, either uh, if there's a spark of goodness in them, they won't enjoy reading that. And and so I thought, why put it in their face if they if if I don't have to? I I know what Flannery O'Connor says about you know using the grotesque to shock you know her readers, but I figure also that you know if you look at some of the best Alfred Hitchcock films, suspense movies, they're able to convey an atmosphere of fear and vulnerability uh, without, for the most part, actually showing violence. And so I wanted to be reverential both towards my childhood self, who doesn't deserve to be in shown in close-up uh, be, um, being a, a victim, but also be reverential towards readers, particularly ones who might be triggered, to and, and do like a good director would do by having the camera move away at a certain point. Um, but even with the literary camera being moved away, the um, or moved aside, uh, the reader knows by the time I get into my teens that I'm carrying certain wounds, that I have certain uh, unresolved uh, family uh, issues, uh, and that 
these uh, wounds are going to shape uh, the way that I look at myself and the way that my emotional life happens. Also, they'll, they'll shape the way that I look at my relationship uh, with with God um, because uh, th- there was a certain point when I was quite um, quite you know I would almost say devout even though I wasn't strictly speaking a devout Jew. I, I had I guess devotionals maybe a better word in the true sense. I had a, a real a genuine encounter with God when I was five and and another encounter with God that I described when I was when I was 13, uh, and then because of certain um, feelings of being hurt and disrespected, um, kind of catching up with me, I uh, I uh, felt that if God existed, He didn't care about me, and that shaped the way that I acted in my teens and 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 twenties. You know the uh, Nietzsche. Um, hypothesis that if God does not exist, then then uh, everything is permissible. Well, I uh, was not truly an atheist ever, but I, um, at certain points of my life, resolved to live as a practical atheist because I believed that God didn't uh, deserve uh, my uh, acknowledging his uh, divine law in certain areas of my life. You know, I never became a kleptomaniac or anything like that but there were certain areas where I felt it was comfortable to be to be um, relativistic uh, because um, I felt that God hadn't treated me the way that I wanted to be treated and and so I didn't feel that I had any half of the bargain to keep up I wasn't thinking in terms of God having created me or having created me in love Uh, so I, I try to make you know, that kind of um, angst and, and, and pain that I suffered tangible for the reader, even as I also describe, you know, times of great joy. You know, for me, um, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, strictly speaking, one might call them pleasure, but there were t- certainly times when I also felt hints of joy in the music that I discovered, in, in the musical world that I threw myself uh, into. I was seeking transcendence. I was seeking to be out of myself and part of something larger, and I found it through concerts and through uh, my my love of a certain brand of 60s pop music. Can I actually quote your book on that point? I think you have a very beautiful description. I think it's on page 46 of the book. Um, you uh-huh. said, I choose to live for this night, for this moment, for the experience of sharing something exciting with others, that has never been before and will never be again. This is what I wanted. But even as I think these thoughts, I realize helplessly that this moment, this feeling of being of something bigger than myself that takes me out of myself is slipping away. I thought they did a really great job of capturing the allure of kind of the concert scene. Um, I think a lot of us who have experienced that can say, yes, that's what I was experiencing or that's what drew me back. But also... Like you said, it, it really is more pleasure than a lasting joy because even as you're there, it never quite lives up to the hype and it always leaves a little too soon. Um, yes, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I had to restrain myself when I was writing that because the temptation for me is to 
right as dawned the the 50-year-old you know, dogmatic theologian and to write with direct reference to to um, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, end of chapter 13, I think it is, where, you know, St. Paul says, you know, for the form of this world is slipping away or passing away. Um, passing away is, I think, what he says. Um, because those, that's the verse that comes to mind when I think of that experience that I had that you just read as a 17-year-old uh, going to a concert on St. Patrick's Day 1986 at a nightclub that was actually called The Dive in downtown New York City. Uh, but even, you know, as I managed to refrain from quoting rather anachronistically, as it would have been for me, uh, quote, quoting First um, Corinthians 13, I, I, you know, managed to avoid doing that in writing about that time of my life. I think that what I wrote that you just read is perfectly accurate in describing not only my feelings, but also the feelings of other people who were at that concert and similar concerts. And the reason I know that is because the people who were part of that music scene that I describe actually have a Facebook group called, I think, The Dive, um, or Remembering the Dive, something like that. And I, I'm part of this group, and the people in this group will every so often find a photograph taken at or at the dive or taken of one of the bands that played the dive. They'll be going through their things, and they'll find this photograph from a rather narrow time window because this scene only really thrived from 1983 to the beginning of 1986, and there was only one year when it was going on like all all engines, which would have been 1984, uh, actually just before I got onto the scene. The scene was already starting to wane when I arrived as a college student in 85. And so it's, it's really funny in that the people who are part of the scene, I'm one of the youngest ones. Most of them are in their late 50s or their early 60s, or mid, even mid-60s, some of them. And so when they remember this, you know, they're, they know that it was so brief. And even as it happened, we, we would see these bands that, you know, we so enjoyed breaking up, you know, fairly quickly, changing members. So there was always a sense, even back then, that this concert with this lineup of people and this group of people there will only happen tonight. Um, and, and there's another thing, too, about that that whole scene. And this is a very, you know, Generation X thing, Joe. I, Joe, I imagine, are you a zillennial? Are you from, like, between Generation X and the millennials? I was born in 85, so I don't know if I'm millennial or – I. you know, I've, I've never <laughs> never categorized myself, really. I, I'm sure avocado toast is fine. I guess I would say that. Uh, I don't know if that labels me or not. Yeah, the the bottom end of Generation X is age is age forty. So, um, so you would be uh, be considered either a zillennial or a or a millennial. Um, probably simply millennial, actually, if you if you're if you're about thirty four uh, years old. 
Um, so, so you wouldn't have had, you know, this kind of experience. But before the internet, if you wanted to find like-minded people who were into a particular comic book or a particular television show or a particular rock band, you had to find these fanzines, which were often just privately published, even mimeographed or photocopied um, magazines by people who would correspond with other like-minded people around the world who were into the same kind of thing. And so with this music scene that I'm describing in in one chapter of Sunday Will Never Be the Same, this scene at, at the dive, this is people in New York City who were into mid-60s garage rock who wanted to be with listening to new bands that duplicated that sound. And so when we would go to a nightclub, we would be excited to be around other people who were capturing a certain style of dress and a certain, you know, level of musical interest that we could not find elsewhere. And so you could only, you know, find that through these magazines or through going to these concerts by these artists at these obscure clubs. So there was an exhilaration in, um, in finding this sort of, um, how can I put it, this fragile group of 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 people who who almost you know just by chance seemingly by magic kind of coalesced around certain scenes that that spread by word of mouth um it was much more exciting than meeting people who are like minded is today because um there was this sense even for those who didn't believe in divine providence of things meetings being serendipitous you know and it seems like in the case of like listening to music that already is 20 years past its prime so to speak the fragility you're describing seems like almost unavoidable like if if you're someone who I, i grew up very much listening to this exact same music and and it was always like a sense of beauty and excitement coupled with already a sense of something like nostalgia, even as a kid, yes. knowing that, like, this was great music and the people who made it are dead or the band is broken up and, and I'm right, not hearing any right. of this, like, on the top 40 station. So it, it seems like as part of this quest for happiness, um, you maybe were aided by the fact that you couldn't think this great thing will always be here, the fleetingness and the impermanence of it. Uh, was was kind of so transparent, I think. That's right. Exactly, and and that brings me back to the challenge of trying to capture it from, you know, how it seemed in my mind. Because again, the temptation is to just to just tack on biblical language and say, you know, for the form of this world is passing away. Um, but um, but I, I can't do that because I wasn't thinking in biblical language, language at that time. But I, I hope that the reader picks up on that. I do have my diary entry. Uh, I, I, I didn't keep a diary very often back then, but I was so impressed with that concert that I did capture it. And I did, you know, say certain, certain things saying, saying that, um, that, you know, it feels so, you know, amazing to, be with this assembly of people who are only here for this night. So I know that I, I genuinely felt that way, and I'm not just projecting 
back a Christian mindset. Well, let's let you step out of that kind of present tensing. Uh, what would you say to someone who is currently living through that? And what would you say to someone maybe who's never experienced it, but has maybe a kid or a loved one who's, who's kind of in that scene or in that place in the 2019 equivalent? Well, I'd say that that realistically speaking, there's only a small percentage of rock and roll that is um, intrinsically harmful to people. And I, I know I'll get arguments on, on, on that from the, you know, Father George Rutlers of the world and from evangelicals, but um, but it, it's it's really true that in terms of what people listen to and what they hear in the music, um, there's only a small percentage of rock and roll that um, celebrates um, suicide or violence or or hatred. Um, even the rap and hip-hop that people like that has uh, a lot of the macho posturing um, and the offensive language, it may not be the healthiest stuff to obsess on, but if you ask people what they hear in it, they often um, won't tell you that they like it because of the macho posturing. They'll often tell you that what they hear in it is something that makes them feel free. You know, aren't listening to it for the dark stuff, but for a sense of of uplift. So I think that, you know, parents and friends of people who are into, you know, rock and roll should recognize that for rock and roll or or other kinds of popular music, their friends and family should recognize that those people are into that music because it gives them a sense of transcendence and a sense of being in communion with others who make them feel like they're part of this, or this music at least makes them feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And that is that signifies that these people are searching for something that's good. Now, they're not searching it through the ultimate good, but it's possible to speak to their desire for this good and to um, seek to uh, to show them that there's um, a higher good that doesn't necessarily rule out their love of this present, you know, good. Um, as I said, mo- most of this music is not sinful or evil in itself. So to to become Catholic doesn't necessarily rule out listening to, you know, this band or this singer. But that the um, that that Catholic faith does offer them in its fullness certain experiences that music of its own can never fully provide. Thanks. Well, to switch gears, one of the things that really struck me in the book is how complicated um, are the Christian experiences that you have, especially in the early years that you're describing. Uh, so, for example, I believe that your sister's bat mitzvah, uh, the, your, I believe it was your social studies teacher, gave you a book on Christianity. Oh, that wasn't... And it was the first experience. You're actually uh, conflating, conflating two stories. Oh. The social studies teacher was later, but this was the 
parent of one of my sister's schoolmates. Who oh, I'm gave sorry, me, that's right. Uh, a book of children's stories. No, that's all right. So, but I'm curious as to how you understand. So, at the time, you were a Reformed Jew and a child, mm-hmm. and I think some Christians would be uneasy about the idea of doing that, of of giving a book on Christianity, especially at a Jewish religious ceremony. What What's your take on that sort of thing now, looking back? Oh, well, certainly at the time, you know, it was the reception after my sister's bat mitzvah. My sister um, went to uh, an Episcopalian uh, private school uh, because at that time, my family wanted to have us in private school. Later, we went to public school. Um, and the only um, good or or affordable good private school that they could send my sister to happened to be Episcopalian. And so I, and so at the reception of her, uh, bat mitzvah, uh, the father of one of her schoolmates wanted to give me a gift and he gave me a book of children's stories from the Old and New Testaments. I was seven years old, uh, at the time and I was an avid reader back, th- back then, uh, but, um, but I um, thought that it was rather stupid of this Christian at a Jewish event to give me a book that had Christian stories in it. But since I loved books, I read it anyway. I read the stories from the Old Testament, and I read the stories from the New Testament. And it, it certainly gave me an understanding of the continuity between the Old and New Testament at an early age. I didn't notice a great difference between the Old Testament stories and the New Testament stories, the way they were presented. I knew as a Jew that we didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, but I also saw that in terms of the prophetic stories of miracles, prophets are showing shown as doing miracles, and Jesus is shown as doing miracles. Prophets are shown as preaching that people should be good to the poor. Jesus is, is shown as preaching that people should be good to the poor. So, you know, just to see some continuity between the Old and, and the New uh, Testaments uh, was an important lesson for me as as a child. And so, you know, I do think, you know, looking back, that it's certainly worth it for for Chris, Christians to, in a um, kind of um, low-key way to, to not be afraid to introduce Jews to the gospel. But but again, you know, you have to look at the context. Um, the book that that the um, parent, that the father of my sister's schoolmate gave me was a large book. So it wasn't anything that I could, you know, easily hide going home. So it's not like he was secretly trying to force Christianity on me. Um, it was certain that my mother would see the book and say, what is that? So, you know, so there would have been the opportunity for my mother, if she wished, to say, oh, that's got Christian material in it. You can't keep that, which is fine. I mean, if that was her prerogative, if she chose to do that, she didn't, thankfully. Um, so I wouldn't advise, you know, people to secretly catechize Jewish children, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, speaks strongly against uh, uh, against you know that that sort of thing going against parental authority. But as far as witnessing, 
in a way that's not proselytizing? Absolutely. Excellent. And speaking of, so you, one of the things you mentioned uh, was the love for the poor. And I know that was one of the other kind of complicated uh, parts of your Christian exposure, shall we say, as a kid. Yes. So another quote from the book, you say, Christians run this country. Jerry Falwell and his moral majority, majority helped elect the president. But I don't see them taking, talking about how it's a blessing to be persecuted or insulted. I see them siding with the rich over the poor and the strong over the weak. And that, at the time, is after, I believe it was your, uh, was it your mom was moved to tears by the Beatitudes? Um, yes, that's right. So maybe speaking broadly to the Christian experience in witnessing to non-Christians, any thoughts on how involvement in the political sphere helps or hurts that evangelization? Oh, well, cer- certainly. I live in Washington, D.C. now. Uh, I live a stone's throw from the Heritage Foundation uh, and from the um, center, the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College and uh, not far from other think tanks as as well. And, you know, even though I'm now a Catholic and, you know, part of these, this, you know, Christian, you know, majority, so to speak, that, that has you know, an outsized influence in public affairs, even as it's being persecuted, you know, by, you know, those who don't want um, outward, you know, displays of of Christian faith. Still, you know, still, you know, certainly in the United States, Christians have have a significant amount of political influence. And uh, I st- still, you know, I say this as a pro-lifer, I say this as the author of The Thrill of the Chase and someone who, who has been fired from, from a job at the New York Post for, uh, for defending unborn life. Um, you know, e- even, even today, you know, I see the political wing of Christians that has the, um, upper hand in certain areas of Washington politics as still um at least outwardly favoring the 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 rich um and and favoring this you know trickle down economics you know a, a, approach uh that that is um a kind of laissez faire cap- capitalism uh that i know as a catholic who studied the social doctrine of the church is not favored. I know that um, back when Centesimus Anus uh, came came out, um, a, a certain prominent Catholic group promoting laissez-faire economics had to publish its own version of Centesimus Anus with the anti-unbridled capitalism parts censored out. You know and that it's it's really unfortunate, but there are. Uh, People even today in evangelicalism and in Catholicism who want to censor uh, Jesus' preferential option uh, for the for the poor. Uh, so, um, you know, when I was a new a new Christian, uh, I was thinking that being Christian meant siding with these um, 
laissez-faire capitalist Christians on everything because these are also ones who are very vocal for defending unborn life. You know, those, and when you see the people who are very good in one issue also promoting another issue, you know, for someone who doesn't really know uh, Catholic teaching, it can appear that, oh, well, if you're going to be an Orthodox Catholic, then you have to side with this think tank. Um, it took me years to understand that, no, you know, think tanks are not the church. You know, as as Pope Francis says, you know, the church is not an NGO, and, and we can't be con- fused with or act like just another NGO. Uh, we have to practice the entire faith and read the documents of the church in their entirety and not just the parts that agree with our preconceived notion of what uh, politics, Christian politics, should be. Well, thank you very much be challenged. For- Thanks. Yeah, Thank no, I, I think that's a good way of describing it, to, to be challenged and to have this fidelity first and foremost, you know, to the gospel. So for a final question, yes. um, St. Maximilian Colby, you already alluded to him. You said he's on the cover of the book. He plays a role, and I think there's probably some re- readers already hearing that you're, you know, a, a convert from Judaism are going to notice that, you know, obviously there's a, a certain fittingness with that. But I know also in the book – you push back uh, to people who refer to Mary as your Jewish mother because you thought it was more patronizing and condescending than actually like a helpful yes. kind of comment. So if I could, could I have you uh, speak to maybe the role Maximilian Coley played? And uh, in the course of that, if you want to bring up the Jewish dimension uh, to Colby's influence and, and the connections people are making, what your thoughts are about that as well. Sure. Well, uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe interceded for me in a powerful way during that time that I alluded to uh, when I was about to get fired from the New York Post um, after um, I had made an unauthorized pro-life change to a story that was not pro-life. And even though I apologized for making this unauthorized change, uh, the reporter didn't accept my apology, and she went to the uh, editor-in-chief of the Post, call, who was then Carl Allen, uh, a, an Australian buddy of the newspaper's owner, Rupert Murdoch, and uh, the reporter went to Carl Allen with printouts of my blog, The Dawn Patrol, showing that at that time I was blogging every day against Planned Parenthood using unequivocal language to say Planned Parenthood is is killing babies, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't use that language anymore for, for, for certain reasons, you know, of witness, but, you know, I can tell you on this Catholic pod, podcast, and even if there may be non-Catholic listening, that yes, in fact, Planned Parenthood does kill babies. I haven't changed my, my, uh, my view on the evil of, of that by any means. Um, but anyway, it was because of my, uh, of my language to that effect on my blog, that in January 2005, I was about to be and eventually was fired by the by the New York Post. And uh, and while I was waiting for the axe to fall and sitting in my cubicle at the New York Post, I I uh, made a desperate effort just to locate on the internet a pro-life saint and a patron saint of journalists who could 
intercede for me. And uh, I discovered St. Maximilian, read his story, which includes uh, prior to his arrest and being sent to Auschwitz to be where he where he was executed, um, or where he was sent sentenced to die in a starvation cell. Prior to that, I, he, um, among other good works, sheltered thousands of Jews at the Franciscan um, monastery that he founded in Poland. Um, so, so uh, I don't want to go into further detail right now about how exactly he interceded for me because I want to leave that for the reader of my memoir, Sunday Will Never Be the Same. But uh, I will say that uh, Marian devotion did not come naturally for me uh, because Catholics who were well-meaning said, oh, well, think of Mary as your Jewish mother. And Jewish mother in American popular culture means controlling. And, you know, I was at that time uh, feeling uh, that I was in an unhealthily symbiotic relationship with my mother. And so to have this idea of replacing one one mother um, being being um, unhealthily close um, with another mother who's unhealthily close didn't sound attractive to me. Um, and as, as a friend of mine who's a fellow Jewish convert to Catholicism points out, you know, in American culture, you know, if we're comparing Mary with Portnoy's mother, that doesn't sound like a good thing. You know, it doesn't sound like it's justice to to Mary to uh to put this Philip Roth, you know, caricature upon upon her or even Molly Goldberg as much of a heroine as Molly Goldberg was. Um it's it seems to uh to to diminish Mary not for the you know religious Jewishness because that's that's an honor for Mary and for anyone but for the um cultural baggage um so uh, i became close to Mary through learning how St Maximilian was close to her because once i became convinced that he had interceded for me then i felt that well if St Maximilian had this devotion I need to have this devotion too. And so I learned Marian devotion from St. Maximilian, from reading about his devotion and what kind of form it took and from wearing the miraculous medal. And eventually I did discover Mary as a true Jewish mother, but as a Jewish mother with all the good qualities that my grandma Jessie and my grandma Mimi had and with the good qualities that my own mother Rachel has and without the um the you know human um fa- failings and the cultural baggage well thank you thank you so much for coming on don and so thank anyone you. listening the book is sunday will never be the same uh through catholic answers press and let's close with a quick glory be glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy, to spirit. holy spirit as it was in the beginning, the beginning is now, now and ever shall be World, world without world. end. Amen. Amen. And then the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.